We're in Ephesians 1 in our series on Ephesians. I uh, look forward to more this morning. We're, I'm going to read it from the Christian Standard Bible, which might be a little bit new for you, this prayer of Paul. So listen together. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you. As I remember you in my prayers, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler, authority, power, and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm thankful for two, two things, many things, two in particular. I'm thankful that the Phillies won last night. <laughs> Deb! There it is. I... I almost wore my hat, and I was like, nah, I shouldn't. I shouldn't. This is a significant act of restraint on my part. Um, and two, I'm thankful for Scott over here on the upright bass. Scott, thanks for being here. Sounds great. Really appreciate it. It's a little, it gets a little more groovy than normal, which I like. That's good. All right. Um, all right, let's pray, and then we'll talk about Ephesians 1. Almighty, everlasting God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask now that in the words of Paul, you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that our eyes would be focused and clear, that we would perceive exactly what it is you are calling us to do, that we would grasp the immensity of the glorious way of life you have for us and that we might taste the extravagance of your work in us who trust you, your endless energy and boundless strength. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if you have these, but I have some very clear and yet incredibly random memories from my childhood. The ones where you're like, why is that, why is that in there? It's like super clear. And the one I have is of... Uh, I don't know how old I was. I have a brother who's six years younger than me, and at some point my mom had left us home or was somewhere, and I was feeding lunch to my brother, and I gave him a yogurt. Okay, you know yogurt, right? Everybody likes yogurt. And this particular yogurt was a fruit-on-the-bottom yogurt, and I gave him the fruit-on-the-bottom yogurt, and he opens it up. And so the yogurt on top is plain yogurt, and I don't know if you've ever eaten plain yogurt, but man, it's brutal. <laughs> plain yogurt is brutal. So here's my brother, and he's over there. He's six years old, five years old, and he's eating his plain yogurt, and he's just eating it just fine, and uh, I'm not really noticing what's going on, and eventually he gets to the bottom, and he has his first spoonful of the fruit, 
and his face like lights up, and he just has this like exuberant joy on his face, like, oh my goodness, look at this, this is amazing. And I felt so bad in that moment, because like I tortured him with eating plain yogurt by not stirring it up. But here's the thing, he didn't know what he didn't know, right? He didn't know what he was missing until he hit that bottom layer and was like, wow, you've been holding out on me. There's more, there's more here. And I wonder for many, I, I don't wonder, I, I think, I suspect, I even know that for many Christians, the experience of the Christian life is like eating plain yogurt. You know, it's good for you. It just doesn't taste very good, right? Does anybody have this experience? It's like, you wonder, am I missing something? Like, is there more to what's going on here? Is there something else that I'm missing? And today, I want to tell you from Ephesians chapter 1 that no matter where you are on the Christian journey, day 1, year 80, the answer to the question, is there more, is always and emphatically yes. Okay, that's all I'm tell you. So far, we've seen Paul give praise to God for a lot of things. It's effusive. He's just... 11, 12 verses, one sentence, just overflowing with praise to God for what he's done, this glorious multifaceted, it's like a panorama, a diamond. He's holding up the diamond of salvation and just kind of turning it around and praising God for all of the, that he's done. And then it's the second half that we're on today where he turns from praising God and thanksgiving for salvation to intercession, asking God for something on behalf of the Ephesians, asking God to fill a lack that they have in their life. So I want to examine kind of both parts. There's two parts of this prayer, and I want you to see what Paul thinks that the Ephesians are lacking. The other thing I want to do is a little different than I normally do, but I want to offer this message and my explanation of Paul's text as a prayer on your behalf, the same way Paul is offering it on behalf of the Ephesians. I want to offer this. So my application today will be offering prayer on your behalf from this, from this text. All right, it's a good time to remind you that prayer is not just bowing your head and asking God for things, but prayer is everything that we do when we know that God is present with us. And all, that's how all things become prayer when we're aware of God's presence and we're interacting with him. And so this sermon is a, is a prayer sermon. It's an experience of prayer coming into the presence of God. The parts that feel like prayer to you and the parts that are not, that don't feel like prayer to you are coming before God. So the big idea here is that being in Christ, and there's a lot of different ways I could say this, but being in Christ is our series name, and I've been summarizing every week with being in Christ means, and then filling in the blank from this text today, being in Christ means pressing in to knowing God. Being in Christ means pressing in to knowing God. Let's look at, look at what Paul writes here, verse 15. He says, this is why since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. This is the first part of the prayer, giving thanks to God for the Ephesians. And he gives thanks to God for two things that he sees in the Ephesians. The first is their faith in Jesus. Okay, these people, these Ephesians, they believe in Jesus. They believe in his story. They believe in his promises, and we heard this two verses ago in verse 13. In him you also, you Ephesians, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed, and you received and were sealed with the Holy Spirit. This 
This is the blazing center of Christian faith, right? Belief in Jesus and what he's done. It's all over the New Testament. The verses that you know by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus comes in Mark and says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul in Romans, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved. Belief, this is at the center of Christian faith. Hebrews 11 tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. (laughs) Faith is essential for what it means to be in Christ, to be a Christian. And these people, they do this. These Ephesians, they believe the promises of God. They're trusting in the person of of Jesus and the work. They know the creed. They can say it. They believe the story of how Jesus became man. We can't take this for granted about all churches, all people, right? People believe in a lot of things. Even people that seem to be Christians believe in denominations or politicians or doctrine. Paul's saying, no, no, you Ephesians, you believe in Jesus, and I thank God for that. I heard about your faith. I'm thankful. But then he adds this. Since I heard about your faith, I thank God for that, and I also thank God for your love for all the saints. I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. So what Paul sees in the Ephesians is not just some cold, detached intellectual belief in Jesus, but actually love, that they've believed in Jesus in such a way that it's transforming their ethical life, that they love one another well. This is like they're they're doing what Christians are supposed to do. (laughs) They believe in Jesus, and they love Christians. They've joined the team, and now they're doing what teammates do, which is love other people. And Paul's thanking them, praising God, thanking God for that. Right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have all the faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. He's saying to the Ephesians, hey, you guys have both of those things. You have faith in Jesus and love. Jesus, I quoted this last week, John 13, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. These are These are transformed people. These are disciples who believe and love God and their neighbor. And the modern critique of many Christians is that they don't seem to love one another very much. You look around churches, you look around Christian communities, it doesn't feel like people love one another very much. And Paul says, no, you have faith in Jesus and you love one another. At this point, you're like, these are faithful Christians. They're faithful, loving believers. Like, this is hope for for your kid. This is what you hope for for someone who comes into the church, that they become a person that believes in Jesus and loves other people, right? <laughs> love God, love people. This is, there's like a thousand churches that have that as their slogan. Love God, love people. This is the summation of Christian faith. And as I read this, um, it makes me thankful for our church. This is what I see in, in you, you specific people sitting in this room that I know, that you believe in Jesus. You affirm, we affirm every week, we affirm the creed, the story of God. We come and we receive communion. We trust, I know many of you personally, I can feel and sense and experience the trust that you have in Jesus. I know you study his word, you listen, you hear, you've responded to the word of salvation. In our community groups, in worship, we're full of the story of Jesus, and we believe it. We affirm it. We know it. We believe it. Redeemer is a church full of Jesus-believing people, and I thank God for that. 
I don't take that for granted that we're here. We have young and older people. We have wealthy and struggling people. We have strong faith and weak faith. We have healthy people and sick people. We have families with kids and we have empty nesters. And all of these people are believers in Jesus. And it's amazing to see that happen in one in one community. And so I give thanks to God. I read this and I'm like, I give thanks to God the same way Paul did for the Ephesians, for you. We can thank God for that. I also thank God for the love that you have for the saints, for one another. Three years ago, we planted Redeemer and almost everybody was strangers, like 50 or 60 strangers. And we've developed into a community of care and love. We've seen this. this. People have needs. Ken had surgery this week, and he's being cared for and loved, and he feels that from the church, from you. He feels that. He experiences the love. There's been small acts and large acts of love for one another that we've experienced in the body over the last three years. I was talking to somebody recently who said something like this to me, that in their community group, they have not felt as known and as loved in a very long time being in their, being in their community group. Like this is people experiencing the love of Jesus. The other, someone else said to me, my, my community group is my family. They love and support and care, and I would not be walking with Christ the way I am today without that over the past three years. The love for one another is here in our church. It doesn't always feel warm and fuzzy. <laughs> love is not always warm and fuzzy, but love is an activity that comes out of the Holy Spirit, as we saw last week, that we see and experience in this community. This, the love of Jesus is here. And so I thank God for you, for our church, for the love and the faith that we have here. And at this point, reading this text, I'm thinking, these, the Ephesian Christians, they're, like, they're, the, they're the top shelf Christians. <laughs> they're believing in Jesus, and they're loving one another. Like, what else is it? These are the, the Ephesian Christians are the community group leaders. They're the, they're the teachers. They're the deacons. They're the people that are at church every week and on the weekends and weeknights and weekdays. And they're just, they're present. They're here. They're loving. They're giving. They're you go to the, you know, you go to a parent-teacher conference and you want to hear how your kid is doing in school. And if you had a, like a congregant pastor meeting with Paul about the Ephesians, he'd be like, A-plus Christians, faith and love, right? They're passing with flying colors, two thumbs up. It's important to remember Paul did not say this about all of the, all of the churches. Remember Galatians? Remember this, like, Verse two and a half of Galatians. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, right? So Paul's not just a warm and fuzzy thumbs up all the time. The Ephesians are receiving his commendation and his thanks. There's other churches in the Bible, not by Paul, but these churches in Revelation, right? The church to Sardis. John, uh, Jesus is speaking through John, says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Ouch. Laodicea, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Not the Ephesians, though, right? The Ephesians, I give thanks to God for your love and your faith. These are the five-star model Christians. And I want to pause here because I think that many of us, many of you, faith plus love, faith in Jesus, love for others, kind of encapsulates and summarizes the entirety of the Christian life. Faith in God, believe in Jesus, love other people. Summarizes the Christian life. Believe the promises of God, love your neighbor, endure to the end. This is the, this is, this is the best there is. This is what you're striving for. This is what you're hoping to accomplish. This is the goal. I don't know if you've seen those T-Mobile commercials where there's like the magician on stage and it says, this is, 
and he, and he waves his wand, and there's a little rabbit. He says, this is what you expect from your mobile carrot. You're waving a wand, and you get a little rabbit. He says, this is what you get with T-Mobile, and he waves his wand. It's like a giant white horse. Like, I think many of us are expecting out of the Christian life like a little white bunny rabbit. We believe in Jesus, and we love our neighbors as best as we can, and that's it. And that, that vision of the Christian life colors our evangelism, what we're trying to sell if it, as it were, to others, to come into the church. We're trying to sell, believe in Jesus and love, neighbor, love your neighbor. It changes the way that we do and think about what we expect from church. It certainly changes the way we have devotion before God, what we're expecting to get out of Christianity, what we think this is all about. And I know for me and for others that I've talked to of you over the past even four weeks reading Ephesians 1, we read that we've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and we're like, I don't really know what that means because this tastes a lot like plain yogurt to me. I believe in Jesus. I did that. I'm trying to love my neighbor. I did that. Is this all there is? It just kind of is this, the summation of what we think Christian life is about. And so it's really essential to see that these five-star Christians, these Ephesian five-star Christians, Paul says, I thank God for your faith and love, those two things that we think are the Christian life. And then he says, and I pray for you something that you lack. You have faith, you have love, you have all the blessings of the last 11 verses. You have every blessing in the heavenly places. You've been predestined and adopted and justified and redeemed. You have an inheritance. You've been sealed with the Spirit. Paul says, and you still lack something that I need to pray for you for. What in the world could they lack? God has given them all these things. They have faith, they have love. What else is like, is there more? And it's important to see that for Paul, faith and love is not enough. It's not all there is. Believing in Jesus, loving your neighbor, it's not all there is. And if that's jarring for you to hear, that just goes to show how much we've misread and misunderstood and misapplied the New Testament. And this, this text, the rest of this text, which we're just going to offer some pointers. We can't dig into every part of it. I want to offer you a little bit of pointers, some reorientation on what the Christian life might hold for you. What is it that is lacking? You have faith? Check. You have love? Check. What, what is still lacking? What is still available that you don't have? Where's the fruit on the bottom of the yogurt, as it were? Listen, I pray, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would, here comes, give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know. Dot, dot, dot. Now I just want to point out, it says, would give you the spirit. Three verses ago, he said, you already have the spirit. <laughs> so what he's praying for is not the presence of the spirit, praying for a specific work of the spirit in your life. And what is that work? It's the work of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That you would have the eyes of your heart illuminated. All of this summarized in a single idea. It's the center of this entire text. So that you may know. So that you may know. Now, the word no is really hard to talk about in our context. Because in our Western post-enlightenment context, to know means to have intellectual like, knowledge of something. Right? Believing is, is most of the time, you, you, we use this word in the context of mental assent or awareness of something. 
right? I know my math facts. I know how the directions to get somewhere. I know that person. And this is made so much worse by our use of technology and our interaction with technology. Right? We, we know people. I make fun of Lem all the time because he has a million Facebook friends and knows every worship pastor in the country. And we use the word know when we have awareness of somebody. When somebody has met us or we've met them, we say, I know them. I used to talk about this at Carmel because there were so many people there. I'd walk through the halls and somebody would ask me, do you know him? I was like, oh yeah, I know him. He's a great guy. And then I'm like, I don't know his last name. I don't know his kids. I don't know anything about him. But I use the word I know him, right? Because we have this this, especially as we interact with each other through technology, we, we know other people without knowing them in a deeper way. We know all kinds of things happening around the world. Like you read the news, you have awareness of all these things that you know are happening in Ukraine, and you don't know them, you know about them, you know of them. And actually, access to knowledge, like Google being right here at my pocket, the access I have to knowledge actually makes me know less. Right, GPS makes us stupid. We, we know our city way less than we would if we didn't use GPS. This access to knowledge actually makes us know less. And so what we read when we say that you may know, we're, we're something very different than what we use that word to mean. It's not less than intellectual ascent and knowledge and awareness of, but it's way, way more than that because Paul is rooted in this Hebrew understanding of the word know. And it has two parts that I want to highlight. They're right here in the text. The first is, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. One of the commentators said that the eyes of your heart seems to be a metaphor that Paul made up because it's not, nowhere else do you find that in literature in the ancient world or in Greek anywhere. That Paul made up your inner life having eyes to help you understand that there's a perception that needs to happen. The first part of knowing is perceiving, seeing. That, that on, in, in your inner being, there's an awareness of something that needs to happen. That your awareness is this big, and it can then be this big, and this big, and this big. That your awareness and perception needs to grow. And he says this later in chapter 3 as well, that you may, this is what we're using for the benediction, this series, that you may have strength to comprehend, is a similar word, with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth. There's, an, there's a perception that is the foundation of knowledge. All these things that Paul talked about in chapter one, God has done them, but we don't perceive all of them in our hearts. They might be true, but Paul's praying for a perception of them, an awareness, a growing awareness of them. But there's a, a difference between mental ascent, like I saw my house plans when we built our house, you see them on paper, I mentally ascent that I know what my house looks like, but when I see my house be built, it's dramatically different, right? This is the seeing with your heart, actually seeing the reality of something, not just knowing that it's true. So knowing it's true is one thing, seeing it is a perception that is the foundation of this biblical knowledge. But the second half Perception is the first half. The second half, then, is always in the Bible, experience. Biblical knowledge, when, the, when you see the word know in the Bible, it always includes experience. This is Dallas Willard. Knowledge in biblical language never refers to what we would call today head knowledge, but always to experiential involvement with what is known, actual engagement with it. We have, like, like four lines worth of illustrations here because it can be illustrated in so many fun ways, right? You ever 
You go downstairs, or I don't know, downstairs. You go, that's what, with Christmas morning, I have this association with coming downstairs to the tree, right? You come downstairs, you sit on the tree, you see this giant box, you're like, yes, this is going to be amazing. You rip open your box, you're like seven years old, you rip it open, you pull it out, and it's like a piece of paper with a picture of a bike on it. You're like, I guess I get a bike, or do I get a picture of a bike? Like, I know I get a bike, but I have no experience of it. I have no knowledge of this gift. Many of us interact with God that way. He's a picture on a paper, but we don't know him. Biblical knowledge means riding the bike. (laughs) You can't know a bike unless you ride it in biblical words. The difference between seeing the Airbnb listing and going into the Airbnb. You you know there's a difference between those two things, right? (laughs) Usually in the wrong way. This does not look the way that it looked in the pictures. All right, I was at, when I was at the Harbor Conference a couple weeks ago, I forget even the context of this, but somebody used this illustration is you come, into, you come into Thanksgiving dinner and your family's all there and you're all excited and you sit down at the table and your grandma plops, plops a recipe card on your plate. There's dinner. That's very different from eating dinner, right? You know what's for dinner. You know the ingredients. You know it, but you're not tasting it. Many of us engage with Ephesians chapter 1 like a recipe card. It's there on the plate, but we're not eating it. We're not experiencing it. I could go on for a long time with these illustrations. In, In the Bible, when Paul says, so that you may know, he's saying that you may perceive and that you may experience the thing that is known. And Paul identifies three aspects here. Each of these could be its own sermon, but I'll just walk you through them real quickly here. Three aspects of God and salvation that he wants the Ephesians to perceive, increase in their awareness of, and experience. The first one is the hope of your calling. Like hope is joy that results from assured expectation. He wants us to actually enjoy the reality of the hope of what God is doing and done. That we, that we experience that. That we don't just know that something good is going to happen. We're experiencing in the now the hope and excitement and warmth and pleasure and enjoyment of that. He wants the Ephesians to experience both the perception of what God is doing and the experience of it. The next one, verse 18, the second half, the, uh, Eugene Peterson in the message translates this phrase as, that you might grasp the immensity of the glorious way of life he has for Christians. That you might perceive and experience this way of life that God has for you and for me. The immensity of this glorious way of life. Another translation calls it wealth. The underlying word is this word for like lavish, opulent, abundant spending that God has done on your behalf. Every time I think of opulence, I think of South Park Mall. Have you ever gone to South Park Mall at Christmas time? You just walk through, and you're like, I've never even heard of any of these stores. Because <laughs> they're like four levels above my shopping stratus. Right? It's like opulent and expensive. And I think that's, there's some kind of image there of, of God inviting us into this expansive, expensive, opulent overboard wealth of joy and grace that he wants for us to experience and know and perceive. The last one is the power of God towards us, verse 19. The immeasurable, Paul calls it, immeasurable. Not able to be measured. 
boundless, endless power towards us who believe. It exists. Do you perceive it? Do you experience? Paul wants you, expects the Ephesians to be able to perceive and experience that. We don't have time to look at verses 20 to 23, but that's God's power being described in the resurrection. And he's going to talk about power, God's power next week. So here's what this boils down to, is that every Christian, Paul is praying this for existing believers who check the faith box and check the love box. He's still praying for them that they will not stay in that place, that they will grow in their perception and experience of all of the blessings of God that he just described. That you never get to the bottom of God's blessing. Right? It's like if, if the yogurt just had more layers. After every fruit, there's another layer. You can just dig and dig and dig and dig. I, I like to go hiking in the, uh, out in the mountains, and I tend to go back to the same couple of hikes because I know them and they're, you know, comfortable with them. And, and I was flying to Louisville two weeks ago, and you fly over all those mountains. You're like, you, you could set out today, and you could, you could hike literally probably for the rest of your life and never hit the end of every trail. That is what Paul thinks it's like to be a Christian. To have no end to the way of exploring and experiencing and receiving the blessing and grace of God. It's literally endless. The problem is in our capacity to receive that, and Paul is praying that the Spirit would give you capacity to perceive and experience the hope and the riches and the power of God. And yet so many of us are content with head knowledge of God. We're either content with or we don't know there's more than that. We don't know that there's this abundant life. Do you know that there's more? Are you pressing in to receive the blessings that he's describing? It's a great verse. You've probably heard it because it's pretty well known, but Hosea chapter 6. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Right? His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Let us press in to know him. Being in Christ means pressing into the life of God. You never hit the bottom. You never arrive. You never get to the end of the joy and great graciousness of God. And this is what I pray for you when I read this text. I pray against the blindness and apathy and darkness. Paul had other places described these Ephesians as having been in darkness. And now their hearts are illuminated. They can see and perceive the ever-deepening, ever-expanding experience of the joy and power and hope and grace and mercy of God the joy of a secure future, a taste of the increasing riches of God's way of life. Is this your experience of the Christian life? Because this is what Paul is praying for for you. This is what I'm praying for for you. An increased experience of the power of God over the forces of darkness in the world. Again, they're going to look at that. We're going to look at that next week. Pressing into the knowledge of God. C.S. Lewis ends the last battle with that it's a famous illustration, just so good, where the, um, the kids are kind of moving into the space that he's talking, he's kind of describing as eternity, and one of the guides kind of says to them, they're kind of asking where they're supposed to go, and he just kind of points this direction and says, you're supposed to go further up and further in, right? We tend to think of the eternal state as perfection, and we think of perfection as something static. When I'll be perfect, like I'll be perfect, there's Perfect things can't change. They're already as good as they can get. Not with God. Perfection is not a static state. It's an ever-increasing exploration. 
Jeremy and Mancini and I were talking about this, and we have this exploration desire in our hearts as humans, right, to explore. People want, we want to go to the moon, we want to go to Mars. We want to explore the, the, and if you think about our galaxy and how much of it we've explored, right, it's very, very small. And you've heard someone talk about the bigness of the universe and all the galaxies and all these things, and it's, it's supposed to wow us at the, at the greatness and the glory and the expansiveness of God. But what if perfection, what if heaven, what if our experience of God is like the experience of us as humans exploring the universe for all eternity, new planets, new places, never-ending exploration of all the things God has made for us where we'll never reach the bottom of it. And in the now, we're waiting, we're waiting for the sadness and pain and trials to cease, and yet the kingdom of God is at hand. You can see and perceive and experience the glory and the mercy and the power of God now? Do you know that? Is that your vision of the Christian life? Because there's more. Wherever you are right now, there's more. There's another step. There's another invitation to press into the knowledge of God. Let's pray.